Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. About 10 years ago, my dad was in a really bad car accident. He was driving for work um, from Austin to San Antonio. And uh, it was raining. He was on the highway. Um, and he lost control of his car going about 75 miles an hour. Um, he hydroplaned into the ditch, the car rolled numerous times, um, and then he ended up crashing into this concrete wall. Um, it was really bad. Like I said, he had to be cut out of the car with the jaws of life. He was taken to the hospital by helicopter. And Amy, my wife, and I got the call from my mom, and we drove down to San Antonio, obviously, to see him. We were praying for my dad the whole time we were driving down, obviously. like We just couldn't help but even do it. We were calling everyone that we knew as well, asking them to pray, telling them what had happened. More people started to hear about what happened. They reached out, texted me, called me, said they were praying too. We arrived at the hospital. A bunch of folks that I knew from childhood were in the waiting room outside the ER. And all of them, every single one of them, one of the first things out of their mouth was, I'm praying for your dad. I'm praying for your dad to pull through. Not only that, but I found out that they had enlisted all of their friends to pray on his behalf as well. Have you all ever heard of a prayer chain? Man, these folks were sending text messages, emails, and this was right about the time that baby boomers discovered Facebook. So <laughs> they were posting and liking and sharing up a storm. We had a serious prayer chain going on, like literally thousands of people praying for my dad. He spent seven days in the ICU and he pulled through. It felt like a miracle. And I remember we stood there in the hospital room as the doctor told us that he was gonna make a full recovery. It was gonna be a long road, but he was gonna be okay. And someone said, that's the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer. Immediately after hearing that, all these questions started popping in to my mind. Did God only save my dad because people were praying for him? If only a hundred people had been praying instead of a thousand people, would God have just let him die? I think it's important to point out that when all of this was happening, I was in my early 20s, I was on staff at a Southern Baptist megachurch, one of the largest evangelical churches in America. I was not looking for reasons to question God. I was not looking for excuses to doubt the power of prayer. In fact, at this point in my life, I was doing everything that I possibly could to stuff down all my questions, to swallow all my doubts. But this one, y'all, it would not go away. And things got worse. Because as I began to play out this scenario of what really happened with my dad and prayer and the intersection of these two things, I began to realize that a God who would only save my dad's life if enough people prayed was not a God that I wanted anything to do with. A God who responds to prayer chains with thousands of people on them 
but ignores the still small prayers of individuals who so desperately need his help just because they don't have enough people praying alongside them was not a God that I could place my faith in. So pretty soon this medical crisis for my dad, it turned into this full-blown faith crisis for me. Have y'all ever been there? Have you ever wondered how this works? Why some prayers get answered, why some don't? Why it feels like these times when you are the closest to God yield no prayer answers. But some of these times when you are struggling so deeply and you just toss one out, that one gets answered. I'm not going to be up here singing Garth Brooks' unanswered prayers to you. But there might be some good theology in that song. I'm telling you all this today because we're starting this brand new teaching series called Wholehearted Practices. And if you've been a part of Restore, even for a short time, you know that we are all about understanding the larger context of both scripture and the world around us. If we want to understand something that's going on here, it's important to understand the things that are going on here. So let me step back for a second. I want to position this series we're kicking off today inside of something larger that we've been doing for the last six months. So back in August, we kicked off something called a year of healing and wholeness. And it's based on Jesus' words in John 10.10 where he says he came to bring humanity, life, and life to the full. But even though that's Christ's desire for all of us, many of us, if not most of us, are not really experiencing that fullness of life. As we continue coming out of the pandemic and grappling with so many difficult things happening around the world and in our personal lives, most of us are feeling some combination of tired, overwhelmed, anxious, distressed, or in pain. And we aren't exactly sure what to do about it or how our faith is supposed to help. And so we decided to spend this year diving deeply into how we can experience healing, wholeness, and fullness of life, both as individuals and as a whole church family. So in the fall, we talked about what prevents healing and wholeness, right? Things like misunderstandings about who God is, about about who we are, who he says we are, things that get in the way. But this spring, we're talking about not what prevents healing and wholeness, but what actually promotes healing and wholeness, and this, this word we've been focusing on throughout this semester to talk about this is wholehearted, wholehearted. How do we show up in life, in our communities, in our relationships in wholehearted ways? So last week we wrapped up this series called Wholehearted Postures, which was all about the postures that Jesus chose to embody during his time on earth. Things like faith, and tenderness, humility, inclusion, courage, and joy. These are some of the ways Jesus to sh- chose to show up in the world, and it should be the way that we, as followers of Jesus, chose, choose to show up too. So today we are continuing to focus on wholehearted living by starting this series about wholehearted practices. Now, why did we choose to focus on postures before practices? Well, it's simple, really. Our practices are pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like. Our practices don't matter if our posture isn't of Jesus. Many of us grew up in Christian cultures where we were handed a big checklist of things to do, right? Pray every morning, every night, before every meal. Have a quiet time of studying the Bible at least once a day. 
Nighttime is acceptable, but real Christians wake up early in the morning and do it, right? <laughs> go to church every Sunday, Wednesday night, go on a mission trip every year, tithe 10% on and on and on. We were told that we had to do all these things. Most of us weren't told why. Beyond something like, this is what God wants and this is what good Christians do. But what's the actual point of these practices? Well, the point, y'all, is Christ-likeness. To live and to love like Jesus. To experience the grace, hope, and joy he offers to us and then give it out to every single person that we encounter. To help make God's kingdom a reality on earth as it is in heaven. That's the point of these practices. But I don't know about y'all, but there have been so many times in my life where I've diligently performed these practices and there was absolutely nothing Christ-like about it. This has been true of me and I'm sure it's been true of others. And I bet you've observed it over your time as well. We've all seen stuff like this, right? We've seen people pray before a meal, out to eat, and then be a jerk to the waiter or waitress, right? We've seen people read their Bible, wake up diligently every morning, read their Bible, and then go to a job where they exploit people all day. I've seen people evangelizing on street corners with big signs and megaphones while completely ignoring the people sleeping beneath an overpass 10 feet away. Our practices are pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like. And as we kick off this series on wholehearted practices, I actually want to take it a step further to say not only are our practices pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like, but our practices are pointless if they don't produce Christ-like fruit in our lives and in our communities. See, in a letter to the early church, the persecutor of Christians turned pastor named Paul said it like this, the fruit of the spirit, that is the work of Jesus in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if our practices these spiritual things that we're doing in and out every day aren't producing more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us and in the world, then the spirit of Jesus is not in those practices. They are empty. They are meaningless. Sometimes they're even hurtful. To bring it all back to where we started, this became my problem with prayer. I tried to practice it. Every morning, every night before meals, I tried on my knees. I tried in my prayer closet, which was just my regular closet, but when I closed the door, it was my prayer closet. <laughs> I tried everything I could think of, honestly, everything I'd been told. It didn't work. Nothing helped. There was no good fruit that came out of it. I began to resent prayer. So for the last 10 years, I've been trying to figure out what prayer is, why it matters, and how to practice it. And what I've become convinced of is that there is no correct understanding of prayer, that it's multifaceted, that it's complex, but I'm also convinced that there are harmful understandings that actually lead us away from Jesus and Christ-like fruit. Now listen, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend like I have everything figured out. I absolutely do not. But I want to open scripture and I want to share with you what I've learned about the purpose and practice of prayer. Does that sound good? Okay. 
Let's do it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You can open your Bible, your phone there if you want. The verses will also be on the screen, though, if you want to follow along there. Now, again, context, what we now call the book of Ephesians is actually a letter written by that same persecutor of Christians turned pastor I mentioned earlier named Paul. He started churches all over the Near East in the first century, and he would often write letters back to the church leaders to address issues they were having. Now, listen, Ephesians is a little bit different from many of Paul's other letters in that it is his broadest instruction. What I mean by that is that it's not just written to a single church. It was written to a bunch of churches all over Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. In fact, this is really cool. Many of the earliest manuscripts of this letter include a blank spot at the top where each individual church would fill in the name of their church or the city that their church was in or whatever before they read it to their congregation. So the first 14 verses of chapter 1, they're Paul's explanation of what it means to be a Christian. He says, we've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been given the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit of the Spirit. And then in verse 15, he transitions and he shares about how he prays for his siblings in Christ. Now, if you stop and think about it, the world that these first century Christians lived in was tough. It's not hard to think of pressing prayer requests for them. A a better government would have been a nice start. See, Nero was the emperor of the Roman world at this time. He's one of the most notorious persecutors of Christians in the history of the world. Nero used to light Christians on fire, use them as torches for his parties at night. These first century Christians would have been living in deep fear of Nero and the Romans. So praying for a a change of government or even just a little letting up of oppression would have been a really appropriate request. But that's not what Paul prays for. Now we might assume that another one of Paul's prayer requests would be for healing from diseases. Again, if you know much about this time, plagues and other incurable ailments, they were this daily battle in the first century. But Paul doesn't pray for that. Well, many early Christians were also very poor. So we can assume, right, Paul probably prayed for food and water and shelter for them. All these things, they seem like obvious prayer requests for us, but Paul doesn't mention any of them here. Not a one. In fact, don't miss this. In all of Paul's recorded prayers for his siblings in Christ, there is not one single appeal for their circumstances to change. Not one time. All the requests that I would have had, that we would have had at the top of our list, aren't even mentioned by Paul as he prays for his friends. Now, does this mean that it's like wrong or sinful to pray for these things? Certainly not. Absolutely not. If you actually remember, Jesus prayed for a change of circumstances in the Garden of Gethsemane. But all this does mean that Paul didn't consider those requests as important as what he chose to pray for instead. And I believe what Paul does pray for here helps us have a better understanding of what prayer is, why God gave it to us, and how we can practice it today. Ephesians 1, verse 15, here's what it says. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, Paul says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my 
prayer. So Paul hasn't stopped praying for these folks since he first heard about all the things that was going on with them. So if if he's not praying for their circumstances to change, what has he been praying for? Well, Paul identifies two things. The first one is found in the next verse. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. That is prayer request number one from Paul. He prays that his siblings in Christ would know Jesus better. Now this word know here is so much more than intellectual comprehension. That's usually what comes into our minds when somebody asks, did you know this, did you know that? It's this intellectual understanding. But that's not what it means here. This word, in the Greek, it actually means experiential understanding. One of my favorite biblical concordances defines it as contact knowledge, which I love so much. Knowledge that you have to actually experience in contact. This is first-hand lived experience. Or to put it another way, Paul's prayer request number one isn't that they would know about Jesus. It's that they would experience the depths of Jesus' loving presence. That they would know him. Contact knowledge. Why? Because Paul knows that a circumstance change would probably only be temporary. He knows, just like every single person in this room, that life is a roller coaster ride. It's full of ups and downs, and Paul knows the best way to navigate the ever-changing circumstances of life is to rest deeply in Jesus and his perfect love for us. That's prayer request number one. Paul wants these first century Christians, and I believe us by extension, not to be defined by everything around us, but to be defined instead by who Jesus says we are, God's beloved image-bearing children. So Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances to change. He prays that they would become more dependent on Jesus no matter what their circumstances are. That's request number one. Here's request number two, the next verse, 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Know the hope. So Paul has two prayer requests that he just keeps praying over and over and over again. He said, I have not stopped praying for these things since I first heard about you guys. Over and over and over again. He wants them to know Jesus better and to know Jesus' hope. Those are his requests to God on their behalf. To know Jesus better and to know Jesus' hope. So what is this hope? What does that mean? Because hope is a little amorphous, right? Hope is not not something necessarily that we can just like easily define. It's circumstantial. It's based on what we're going through. Well, Paul defines it. Verse 19. That is the glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So simply put, y'all, this hope that Paul wants his brothers and sisters in Christ to know is the hope of the kingdom of God kingdom of God. It's this this place, this beloved community 
where he says that people receive the glorious inheritance that Jesus offers, the resurrection and life that Jesus freely gives, and deliverance from sin and pain and death that Jesus provides. That's the hope. Now, Jesus talked a lot about this kingdom of God during his time on earth. I don't know if you know this, he actually talked about that more than any other subject during his time here. Jesus taught and demonstrated that God's kingdom is a place where the sick are healed, the hungry are fed, the poor are blessed, the oppressed are set free, the marginalized are lifted up, and all are invited in. He said it was a place where sins are forgiven, death is conquered, evil is vanquished, and all things are made new. That's the hope. Paul wants these folks to hold on to. You see, Paul doesn't pray for his siblings to have new circumstances. He prays that they would know Jesus and know the hope, that they would experience deeply the love of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And what's really cool about this is that Paul then teaches them how to do both of those things how to live in the love of Jesus and how to help themselves and others experience the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Because here's the thing that Paul knew that I want all of us to be able to grasp a hold of this morning. You see, prayer isn't just holding hands to bless a meal or kneeling down beside your bed to thank God for helping you get through one more day. Prayer takes a lot of forms. When we raise our voices and sing together like we just did, that's prayer. When we reach out our hands and serve together, that's prayer. When we stretch our legs and march together, that's prayer. There's this famous story about a rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel who marched alongside John Lewis and Amelia Boynton and Dr. King at Selma in 1965. And after he came home, he was asked by a friend, did you have time to pray before the march? Did you have a second to circle up and get a prayer in before it all started? Rabbi Abraham responded by saying, for many of us, the march from Selma to Montgomery was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips and walking is not kneeling and yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt my legs were praying. This, my friends, is the work of the church. We pray with our words, we pray with our feet and our hands. Paul reminds us, he describes what this actually looks like as he finishes verse 22. He says, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet here on earth. The things that he did, the things that he talked about, the kingdom pursuits that he gave his life for, those are the things that we should be about, that we should talk about that we should give our lives for. Because he is working in us and through us to share his love and to accomplish his kingdom purposes. All of this 
has become my primary understanding and practice of prayer over the last 10 years. Now listen, this doesn't mean that I don't pray petitionary prayers on behalf of myself or others. It doesn't mean I don't pray alone and meditate with God. It doesn't mean I don't offer up to put my arm around someone else and pray with them when they're struggling. All of those things are beautiful and valid forms of prayer which actually fit into this larger understanding of prayer that Paul gives us here. But all of this that I just talked about, it does mean that my goal for any type of prayer has completely shifted from making some genie-like requests to actually helping myself and others experience the love of Jesus and the kingdom of God through word and deed. That, my friends, I think is prayer. And I found anything else to be really empty. And I want to say one last thing before I close this morning. I know a lot of y'all. I know a lot of your stories. I know that stories like the one that I shared about my dad are not uncommon in this room. I know that some of y'all have prayed and prayed and prayed and lost people. I know that some of y'all have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and had no answer. I know some of you who are doing that right now. Some of you that are going through some of the hardest things you've ever walked through and you are praying and praying and praying and it does not feel like an answer is coming. And I'm not gonna sit up here and pretend that I know why some of our prayers get answered and others do not. But I will tell you, I feel confident in saying that it has absolutely nothing to do with how many people are on the prayer chain or the fervency of the prayers being offered or the holiness of the people doing the praying. And the reason I feel confident in saying that is because of Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned that there is nothing wrong with asking God for help or for a change in circumstances. We know that because Jesus did it in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You remember this story, Luke 22. He, that's Jesus, withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, his disciples. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Jesus is saying, if there is another way to do what we set out here to do, please let me do that. What happened after this prayer? Did the father remove the cup from Jesus? Did he avoid death on the cross? No. Moments later, literally moments later, Jesus is illegally arrested. He would go on to be unjustly tried, brutally beaten, and mercilessly executed. After the holiest person who has ever lived prayed maybe the most fervent prayer I've ever prayed with all of his disciples around him, and it didn't get answered the way he wanted it to. C.S. Lewis reflected on this moment by saying, there are no doubt passages in the New Testament which may seem at first sight to promise an invariable granting of our prayers, but that cannot be what they really mean. For in the very heart of the story, we meet a glaring instance to the contrary. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners 
prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him, and it did not. It did not. When I said earlier that harmful understandings about prayer hurt us and lead us away from the heart of God, this is what I meant. If you have been told that God isn't answering your prayer because you're not holy enough, because you're not praying hard enough, because you're not enlisting enough people to pray with you, that was a lie. That was a lie. It might have been a well-meaning lie, but it was a lie just the same. The truth is that God's desire for us and for all of humanity is to experience love and liberation and fullness of life. And yeah, I think prayer is one of the practices that God has provided to us for that very purpose. And I believe that any forms of prayer which lead us toward that are good and helpful. But y'all, any form of prayer that leads us away from that is harmful. God is not in it. With that in mind, I want to end today's message with a prayer from Paul just a couple of chapters later in Ephesians. If you're comfortable, I'm actually going to invite you to close your eyes and receive this prayer, which was first prayed 2,000 years ago, has been prayed by and for literally billions of people ever since. It's from Ephesians 3, 12 through 21. Here's what Paul prays. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him and that your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And that you may have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is for you. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to understand fully then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think or imagine. Glory to him in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen.